Welcome to God Knows Where. I'm Brett Harris. As we continue looking at slowing down, at regrounding, at Sabbath, we're going to do what I think a lot of you may have thought we'd look at last week and go back to the beginning today, to the first Sabbath, because I think we've been reading it incorrectly all along. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave a rating or a review of God Knows Where if you haven't already, wherever you listen, and help others find the show by sharing it with them on social media or links to your favorite episodes, whatever you want to do to help other people find out about it. Let them know. I appreciate you guys listening and being a part of this journey uh, and going on it with me. So I hope you enjoy today's episode, A Part or A Part. A reading from Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. I'm embarrassed at how little of Neil Gaiman's work I've read. I've enjoyed the adaptations of his work like Sandman and Good Omens that I've seen on television, but I'm late to reading his work. I've heard two interviews recently, though, that I loved. In the most recent one, Gaiman was asked how the form, the novel, comics, graphic novel, screenplay, whatever he's writing, how the form shaped the way he wrote the story. He gave this example about how he plotted out his comics, taking eight sheets of paper and folding them over and creating a booklet. Then he marked where he knew the ads would run and where he'd have an uninterrupted two-page spread and the panels he'd have for each scene of the story. And as he worked on his story, he knew he could only surprise his readers with information or something that happened to a character on the top left of a left-hand page. So he got the book open to both pages. Top left of the left page. That's where he could surprise people. Why? Because that's the first spot after turning the page. No reader's eyes would have accidentally glanced down and ruined a surprise that came in the middle of a page. And no reader would know what was about to happen at the top left of a left-hand page. If he wanted to surprise the reader, that's where he had to do it. And he had to shape his entire story and all the panels to make it happen. He had to make the story fit the form and use the form to shape his story. If he split it up any other way, he'd lose the element of surprise and the story probably wouldn't work as well. Now, there are a lot of curious things to me about the Bible, but maybe the most curious is how we split it up. How we split up these ancient stories into chapters and verses. How we lay out these stories and order these books in ways that shape the way we read them, that may or may not be how they were intended to be read. For my money, there's no example more clear than the very first story we're told. There's so much bound up in this story, and we hear it so often that it sort of calcifies in our minds in a certain way. Darkness. Let there be light. Sun, moon, earth, sky, land, water, animals, people, and rest. 
It calcifies into this very simple story, just the way it would if we'd heard it told all those years ago when our ancestors first began to share stories of how life came to be. But the way it calcifies in our brains and the way it is shared aloud differs from how it's presented to us on the page. You might not have a Bible in front of you, but the next time you do, open it up to Genesis and see what every version of the Bible does, regardless of the translation you're reading. The first six days are clumped together in chapter one of Genesis, but the seventh day, the day when God rests, that gets cut off from the others to begin chapter two, which is where we get the first part of the story of the Garden of Eden. What happens on day seven of the first creation story is no more a part of the story of Eden than any other passage in Scripture. It's the culmination, the climax of God's work in the first story we're told, the very first story we're told at all. And it gets clipped out and set apart between a little title for the next story about the Garden of Eden and the chapter number of this new chapter it's now a part of. Now you might say, but Brett, isn't that fitting? Isn't it poetic that the editors of our Bibles would set apart the story about the day God set apart and deemed holy? Doesn't that reinforce the idea that one day each week is supposed to be different than the other six for us? Maybe. But how would you feel if George Lucas began A New Hope the way Revenge of the Sith ended, instead of starting with a battle involving an unknown black-cloaked villain on a spaceship? It began with a young woman dying in childbirth, or newborn twins being adopted, and that same villain surveying his evil empire being built. It'd be a totally different movie with no mystery. We would know what those characters were going to do, even if we didn't know anything about them. We'd know where it would end up, and we would be waiting for that to happen. We wouldn't be surprised by anything. I mean, what if the beginning of House of the Dragon was just a scene with old Bran Stark sitting on the throne from the end of Game of Thrones, before cutting way back in time to a bunch of dragons roaming around. It wouldn't work, because that's not how we tell stories. That's not how stories make meaning. And what happens in those stories wouldn't surprise us. It wouldn't make us think any differently about anything, or leaving us wanting to know about what was going to happen to the characters in that story. All the things good stories do to us. And when we do this with the first creation story in the Bible, when we split it apart, when we take its form and make it something else, when we try to make it something it's not, yes, we come away with the idea that one day should be completely different than the other six each week. But we fail to see how the storytellers show us how it's related to the other six days. And how, really, how they surprise us with how it relates to the other six. With the story of the seventh day pulled away from the other six, we don't ever really read what is written on the page. We think we know what it says, so we skip over and we move on to the Garden of Eden. We go, yeah, I know. On the seventh day, God stopped and stopped working and rested, and we move on. But that's not what it says. Go back to the first two sentences of chapter 2. In the first six days, the heavens and the earth were completed, but their completion was not the end of the work. The story goes on to say that on the seventh day, God finished the work by resting. Rest wasn't apart from the work. It was a part of the work. 
The work of creation, of life, of being alive within the universe wasn't complete when all the doing was done. The work was complete when God rested and enjoyed and relished in what had been done without anything else left to do. The heavens and the earth and resting within them and the space they create, that was the completion of the work. Creation and the enjoyment of creation, observed and observer, creation and creator, together. When we see rest as apart from the work instead of as a part of our work, it's easy to dismiss it, to forget that it matters, that without it our work is not complete. And it's easy to get to the end of the week every week and always feel like something's left undone, something's left to complete, to feel like our work never will end. And that's because it won't until we've rested. From the day he was born, my oldest child has hated sleeping. He has turned his parents, who were world champion caliber sleepers, into over-caffeinated early risers, very much against our will. The child hates sleeping. He gets up early enough every morning to finish War and Peace before the coffee has finished brewing. He doesn't seem to need sleep. Until he does. And then he hates it even more. I try to regularly remind him that sleep is good for him, that it will make his waking hours all the better, that it will help his body grow and give it the energy it needs to do all he does throughout the day. But my man just runs and runs until he crashes, and just about every time after he finally crashes and takes a monthly or quarterly nap, he feels better. And I try to refrain from saying, I told you so. But we all do this, whether we like sleep or not. We all do this all the time as it relates to Sabbath. And I think part of it is our Western American inclination to produce and to be needed and to believe that we're irreplaceable. But I also think part of it is how we've received this story from our tradition, how we've come to see rest as set apart and something altogether different from the work of creating and producing instead of as an integral ingredient in our ability to work and to create and to produce. Without rest, we can't complete our work. Without rest, our work is not done. Without rest, God would not have completed the work that began with let there be light. When we realize this, We see the rhythm that God put into the work and the balance between the work of producing and the work of rest and the need for both. We understand the reasons why rest, why Sabbath, is a part of the rhythm of our life and why it's so bad for us to choose to ignore it or avoid it. And if you don't believe me and my allusions to Neil Gaiman and comic books and epic fantastical tales and parenting woes, I'll leave you with this from renowned Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, from whom I first learned to pay attention to this story in this way. In his thin but powerful book, Sabbath, Heschel wrote, We would surely expect the Bible to tell us that on the sixth day, God finished his work. Obviously, the ancient rabbis concluded that there was an act of creation on the seventh day. Just as heaven and earth were created in six days, Manua was created on the Sabbath. 
After six days of creation, what did the universe still lack? Manua. Manua, which we usually render as rest, means here so much more than withdrawal from labor and exertion. What was created on the seventh day? Tranquility, serenity, peace, and repose. Here, in the first story of our faith, God surprises us with the idea that peace and tranquility are not apart from creation, or only found beyond it, but rather as an integral part of it. When we pay attention to the stories God tells us, and the way they're meant to be heard, and we hear them the way they were first told, we begin to see what is true from the first page to the last, that God is surprising us in wonderful ways, even in our rest. God Knows Where is written, produced, and edited by me, Brett Harris, with music by Thomas Steinwinder and Michael Trest, and unwavering support from my wife, Elizabeth. If you like what you hear, I'd encourage you to share God Knows Where with your friends and family and give us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. It will mean the world to me, and it'll help more people find God Knows Where. Thanks in advance for your help and for being here and for listening. Until next time, take these words from William Sloan Coffin with you. May God give you the grace never to sell yourself short. Grace to risk something big for something good. Grace to remember that the world is too dangerous for anything but truth and too small for anything but love. So may God take your minds and think through them, and your eyes and see through them, and your hearts and set them on fire.